Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Today's episode is The Glorious Revolution of 1688. In early November 1688, a huge fleet of ships appeared in view from the southern shoreline of England. The invasion force which approached comprised 463 ships in total, roughly twice the size of the Spanish Armada, which had sailed the same waters exactly 100 years before. Taking advantage of a strong, favourable wind, the fleet headed westward along the English Channel. Unlike the Spanish Armada, no ships arrived to intercept the invasion. It sailed in an enormous square formation, 25 ships deep, the right and left of the fleet saluting Dover and Calais simultaneously to show off its size. On board, the troops lined up on deck and fired musket volleys with full colours flying and military bands playing. The commander-in-chief of the fleet was William, Prince of Orange, ruler of the United Dutch Provinces. William had intended to land at Portsmouth, but due to fog, the fleet sailed past it by mistake. The wind made a return impossible, and Plymouth was too risky as it had a garrison. At that moment, however, the wind changed and the fog lifted, enabling the fleet to sail into Torbay near Brixham in Devon. William set foot on shore on the auspicious date of the 5th of November, the anniversary of the gunpowder plot, a failed Catholic plot to blow up the English Parliament. The day would not only mark a watershed moment in the history of Britain, but was of crucial importance for the continent as a whole. The Glorious Revolution had begun. Like most states of the time, Britain in this period was a so-called composite state, made up of diverse units acquired either by dynastic union, by military conquest or by political negotiation. 
In Britain's case, it was a dynastic union of the crowns of England and Scotland, to which Ireland had been attached by conquest and colonisation. The three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland, although united under one monarchy, had separate political institutions, types of society and crucially different religions. In England, the Anglican Church, in Scotland, the Presbyterians, and in Ireland, the Catholic Church. England had by far the largest population, about 5 million, compared with about 2.5 million in Ireland, about a million in Scotland, and about 400,000 in Wales. Over one-tenth of the English population lived in and around London, far larger than any other city in the country. Dublin had perhaps then 60,000 inhabitants, but only three other settlements had more than 20,000 people. Edinburgh had 40,000, and Norwich and Bristol each 30,000. In Scotland, the population was densest in the lowlands in the south, while in Ireland there were two centres of population, one around Dublin and the other around Cork and Limerick in the west. The prospect of a closer union between Scotland and England was much discussed in the 17th century. Indeed, their economies were becoming closer and the landed elites of the two countries drawing together. Nevertheless, serious political and religious differences between the two nations remained. For example, in 1637, the Scots reacted violently against the introduction of the English prayer book, which contributed to the events leading to the Civil War of the 1640s. Ireland was not yet constitutionally part of Britain, but was governed by a Lord Lieutenant appointed from England. Almost all major posts in church and state were held by Englishmen, and statutes of the English Parliament automatically applied to Ireland. Many Protestant settlers arrived in Ireland in the last two centuries, many of them Presbyterian Scots. In spite of being a devolved state, according to Franco Gorman in his book The Long Eighteenth Century, Britain was remarkably coherent and united, for which he gives four reasons. Firstly, the economic and political influence of London was a powerful agency of cohesion and centralisation. Secondly, the ruling class was developing a common political culture, as well as common cultural and educational standards. Third, the existence of the common law stamped a certain area of uniformity upon many areas of life. And fourthly, a common sense of Britishness was slowly developing. The situation in Western Europe at the time was that nations had become polarised into two groupings. In one group were King Louis XIV of France and his allies, which included King Charles II of England. By secret treaty, Charles received a regular subsidy from the French Treasury in order to secure English participation in an anti-Dutch alliance. The members of the other group were all to some extent alarmed by French expansionism and sought to form a united front to resist French threats to their borders or interests. They included Spain, the Austrian Habsburg Empire, 
and the princes of the German Rhineland, whose lands bordered France, and were therefore potential targets of French aggression. Many countries had pro- and anti-French factions, including the United Dutch Provinces. The leader of the anti-French faction was William, Prince of Orange, whose family had for many years been stadtholders or chief magistrates of several of the Dutch provinces. William's first years were difficult as his father died when he was an infant, but his opportunity arrived in the year 1672 when the French invaded the Dutch provinces. Following the overthrow of the Dutch government, William was appointed Captain-General and managed to thwart the French by opening the dikes and flooding the country around Amsterdam. Five years later, King Charles II of England arranged the marriage of his niece Mary, the eldest daughter of his brother James, to William, and this became the basis of his future claim to the English throne. Charles was probably not enthusiastic about the match, but felt pressure to counter claims of Catholic subversion by agreeing to a match with a Protestant. James was certainly not happy, but obeyed his brother's wishes. Peace between France and the Dutch was signed in 1678, but just two years later, French troops annexed the Principality of Orange. William saw this as a direct attack on himself, and from then on made it his life's mission to thwart French ambitions. To this aim, he helped assemble an anti-French coalition known as the League of Augsburg. Throughout the 1670s and the early 1680s, the spectre of French universal monarchy became the main issue in English politics. It expressed itself as fear of popery, but the sentiment was more political than strictly religious. Englishmen feared not so much local Catholics, rather any fifth columnists working for Louis XIV. From 1678 to 1681, there was panic in society about a suspected conspiracy by Jesuits, a popish plot to murder King Charles. Although it was a complete fabrication, before it settled, a number of priests and innocent Catholics had been judiciously sent to their deaths, to wide public applause. At the height of the conspiracy fever, in November 1680, the House of Commons passed a bill that tried to remove James, as a known Catholic sympathiser, from the line of succession. The bill died in the House of Lords, and by 1681, Charles got his way in refusing to exclude his brother from the line of succession. Two years later, several members of Parliament were implicated in a plot to assassinate the King and hand the crown to his illegitimate son, the Duke of Monmouth. Eleven men were arrested and executed, while Monmouth was forced to flee to Holland and to seek the protection of William of Orange. This period is the origin of the division within the English Parliament between Whigs and Tories. Whereas the Whigs were more tolerant of Protestant dissenters, and were those who actively tried to exclude James, the Tories were closer to the Anglican Church and uncomfortable with the threat to the Constitution implied by excluding James. 
when Charles died in 1685, the succession turned out to go very smoothly, and prospects of the new king, James II, appeared healthy. Although he was a Roman Catholic, he enjoyed widespread popularity, helped by his promise to respect the position of the established Church of England. The general election, which he called soon after his accession, returned a majority of Tories, who could usually be relied on to protect the interests of the monarchy. Not all were persuaded, and in the summer of 1685, the Duke of Monmouth arrived in England to head a popular rising. But at Sedgemoor, near Taunton, in Somerset, Monmouth's rebellion was brutally suppressed. After a series of trials, known as the Bloody Assizes, over a hundred rebels were convicted, of whom 250 were executed, and most of the rest transported to colonies in the West Indies to work as indentured servants. The short-term effect of Monmouth's rebellion was to strengthen James's position. He used it as justification to increase the British military, doubling his army to some 19,000 men. Army training camps were held at Hounslow Heath and Blackheath, conspicuously close to London. There was, however, some unease about the brutality shown in the bloody assizes. Moreover, it was soon becoming clear that James felt driven by a religious destiny to help improve the position of Catholics, by, for example, abolishing laws preventing them from holding high office. Throughout his reign, James overestimated his own political strength. He was unable to persuade his Tory allies of his religious policies, and when they refused to back him, in November 1685, he prorogued Parliament, and it never met again in his reign. The next year, James helped finance a new Catholic chapel on Lime Street in London, flagrantly in breach of the rules. James then caused further consternation, especially among Anglicans and Tories, when in April 1687 he proclaimed the Declaration of Indulgence, which granted full liberty of worship to Catholics. Then in the autumn, during preparations for a general election, his supporters ruthlessly purged borough corporations in an attempt to rig the election and secure a compliant parliament. In Ireland, James strengthened the Catholic factions by replacing as Lord Lieutenant the Protestant Earl of Clarendon with the old English Catholic Richard Talbot, Earl of Tyrconnell. Tyrconnell set about filling the ranks of the Irish army with Catholics, including at officer level. And in Scotland, James dissolved the Scottish Parliament for failing to agree to religious toleration. Instead, in February 1687, he issued a proclamation granting freedom of worship to Catholics and Quakers, but not Presbyterians, whom James saw as his main political opponents. Protestant clergymen railed from their pulpits against the spectre of arbitrary rule and military dictatorship, and anti-Catholic riots erupted in many places, including Worcester and Coventry. The memory of the reign of Mary I, known to her opponents as Bloody Mary for numerous executions of Protestant dissidents, still haunted the nation, as did the attempt by Catholics to blow up Parliament in 1605. 
In spite of growing unease at James's rule, there was at first no immediate threat to his authority. A crucial event which turned grumbling discontent into direct opposition occurred in France when Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, which had given limited toleration to French Protestants, the Huguenots. The persecution which followed raised fears that James, an admirer of the French king, would attempt something similar in his own kingdom. The key turning point was the birth by James's wife, Mary of Modena, of a healthy male heir. Mary had suffered from a number of miscarriages, and it was common believed she was barren. With James went into his fifties, it was thought most likely his pro-Catholic policies would be a temporary issue. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. fear of a potential Catholic dynasty was met with great alarm in Holland, for a Catholic king was much more likely to ally with the French, who once again were threatening their neighbours' borders. Louis' revocation of the Edict of Nantes had also aroused great concern in the Dutch Republic, and an increasing number of regents began to accept that William's belligerent attitude to France was justified. William increased his political support when a former opponent, Anthony Heinsius, became a convert to this view when he was sent to a mission to Versailles. There he was reported to be struck by the arrogance of Louis's ambitions and from that moment became one of William's most fervent supporters. Before the birth of James's son, it was William of Orange's wife, Mary, who was first in line to the English throne, so William quickly had to decide whether to invade England and claim the throne. At first look, it seemed like an audacious gamble, although the benefits would be immense. He made no move until he received firm assurances of English support. That the Catholic policies of James II were unpopular were obvious to everybody, but whether the people would rise against them was uncertain. William was not to be lured into action by vague promises. He used his contacts in England to calculate the level of support he might receive if he made an intervention, and was persuaded when he received a secret written invitation from seven of England's leading statesmen. In the Dutch Parliament he argued that Louis XIV's France was becoming ever more dangerous, 
and although the States-General had some fears if William were to rule in England, they agreed to fund the expedition. By autumn 1688, a renewal of conflict on the continent between France and her neighbours appeared imminent, and the English king was not clear which side he supported. On the 20th of September, William published a pamphlet explaining to the Dutch why he was embarking on this dangerous voyage. He presented William as a Protestant crusader intent on restoring the right and just government of England. On the 8th of October, 1688, Louis XIV's army invaded Alsace and seized the city of Philipsburg. This aggressive action helped William to persuade the Dutch to back the invasion of England, more so because the commitment of French troops there meant there was no immediate danger of a naval attack on the Republic. William also persuaded Frederick, the new elector of Brandenburg, to protect the Republic's frontiers along the Rhine, as well as to provide some troops for the expedition. James took some time to believe the rumours of a potential invasion by his daughter and son-in-law, but when he heard confirmation it was happening, he began to panic. He issued writs to summon Parliament the next year and agreed to concessions on religious policy in an effort to shore up his support. But it was all certainly too late to stop the invasion taking place. To strengthen the army, troops from Ireland were summoned to southern England. However, this was counterproductive as it heightened fears among the English population about a Catholic army in their midst, and the king lost more support as a result. William was taking a risk settling sail so late in the year, but he was fortunate that the winds which blew the Dutch ships along the channel at the same time bottled up James' ships in the Thames estuary, a stroke of luck which was afterwards given a name of the Protestant winds. William was able to land an army of 20,000 men in Devon on the 5th of November. The presence of English and Scottish elements in the army gave it a degree of British identity and helped provide legitimacy. William moved cautiously, first occupying Exeter before heading in the direction of London. At the same time, William's supporters in the north of the country helped coordinate popular uprisings against James's rule and on the 14th of November, a riot broke out across London. Furious at the perceived threats of popery and tyranny, they targeted Catholics and James's supporters. On the same day occurred the first high-profile defection from James's to William's camp, when Edward Hyde, Viscount of Cornbury, eldest son of James's former Irish Viceroy, the Earl of Clarendon, publicly swore loyalty to the Prince of Orange. On the 17th of November, James arrived in Windsor Castle. On hearing news of events, he became concerned about his infant son and ordered him to be taken to Portsmouth in secret and for his minders to set sail to France if necessary. On the 19th of November, James then joined his main army on Salisbury Plain, which comprised about 19,000 soldiers. Hearing news of defections elsewhere in the country, James became ever more anxious and started suffering from nosebleeds. The first clash occurred on the 20th of November, when a party of 25 Scottish veterans who had declared for William came across a contingent of the Royal Army, led by the Irish cavalry colonel Patrick Sarsfield. 
The Scots were taking the worst of it until a cry came out, the Dutch reinforcements had arrived. It was a ruse, and it worked. Sarsfield's troops pulled back and the Scots slipped away to safety. William did not want to rush the battle, as he knew he had to win the publicity war. He ordered more copies of his pamphlets to be copied, professing his desire to liberate the people of England. James was likewise reluctant to press forward, and the stress was fast turning him into a nervous wreck. At a council of war, when a defensive plan was suggested, pulling back behind the River Thames, James agreed. He ordered his army to retreat to the town of Reading in Berkshire, and decided that he would return to the capital. The retreat was a blow to the army's morale, and the defections of the gentry continued apace. Before dawn on the 24th of November, John Churchill, the commander-in-chief of the Royal Army, switched to William's camp, followed a day later by James's other son-in-law, George of Denmark. James, with his nerves shattered and army disintegrating around him, hurried back to London, only to discover that his younger daughter, Anne, had also deserted him. God help me, he was said to have exclaimed. My own children have forsaken me. Meanwhile, the Williamite army continued to advance and another skirmish occurred, this time at Reading, where an advanced guard of the prince's army ran into a contingent of Irish dragoons. The Dutch achieved the upper hand and soon took control of the town. In despair, James resolved to flee the country. Accompanied by just two Catholic courtiers, dressed in plain clothes, James rode towards Kent. In one final act of defiance, he took the great royal seal, one of the most symbolic artefacts of kingship, and flung it into the River Thames. However, the hapless king was even unable to flee his own kingdom. He was caught in the town of Faversham by a rowdy bunch of sailors, keeping an eye on the ports for any fleeing Catholics. Not realising who he was, the sailors heckled and strip-searched him for money. When he was brought to an inn and finally recognised, he was escorted back to the capital. Back in London, James briefly attempted to recommence government. He sent an envoy to William to arrange for a personal meeting. William's preference was for James to leave the country, so exploiting the king's fears sent him a message that he could no longer guarantee his well-being, and that James, for his own safety, had better leave London. By his own choice, James left the capital under Dutch protective guard and fled to France, and in so doing consigned himself, his young son James and his descendants, to a life of exile. William entered London, cheered by crowds, his expedition having gone better than he could have expected. He was now de facto ruler of England, but the question of how to legitimise the coup d'etat was much debated. The House of Lords considered voting for a regency to gloss over the breach in the hereditary succession of the monarchy, but the Commons came up with another solution. They concluded that James, by deserting his country, had abdicated, so the throne was vacant, and should be offered to William and Mary as joint sovereigns. The fiction that James abdicated satisfied consciences of the Tories who felt uncomfortable with any kind of constitutional irregularity. Several months later, the English Parliament also passed the Bill of Rights, which struck one more blow at hereditary succession 
by stipulating that Catholics were barred from succession to the Crown. In Scotland, a similar document, the claim of rights, was agreed. The Glorious Revolution is often looked on as the first step on the road to Britain becoming a constitutional monarchy and ultimately a mass democracy, where the King or Queen's powers are limited by popular mandate. In this way of thinking, the country avoided the violent revolutions which shook her continental neighbours, who instead had gone down the road of absolutist rule. At the time, Whig supporters in particular were keen to argue that the revolution had preserved England's ancient constitution from the absolutist designs of James II. There is some irony to the fact that it was achieved by an invasion of a foreign power, the Dutch Republic, who were ultimately driven by their own interests and by the cowardly flight of the king. The authors of the Bill of Rights certainly did not envisage a permanently weakened monarchy, and this would not have been accepted anyway by William. Only by extending the discussion of political changes to incorporate the whole of William III's reign is it possible to see the longer-term impact of the change of dynasty upon the British constitution. Under William, Parliament expected to meet regularly, rather than just at the behest of the King, and in 1694 the Triennial Act laid down that elections should take place every three years. Also of great significance was the Toleration Act of 1689, which removed the obligation to attend Anglican services, and allowed Protestant dissenters to have their own teachers and schools. Together with the lapsing of controls on the press, the state had taken an important step back from making windows into men's souls, and towards permitting the free discussion of public affairs. And in 1701, the Act of Settlement regulated the question of Protestant succession by including the Hanoverian line, and enacted such safeguards as requiring royal decisions to be formally confirmed by the Privy Council. It was fortunate for William that his invasion had gone so smoothly, for the same was not the case on the continent. The French had laid siege to Maastricht, and Louis' son, the Dauphin, had arrived in Luxembourg, threatening the Dutch border. In London, the business of governing the kingdom was just beginning. In Ireland, there remained a Catholic army still loyal to James. In the next episode, I continue the story, focusing on Ireland, and in particular, probably the most iconic battle of Irish history, the Battle of the Boyne of 1690. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. You can get in touch by writing to Carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net or through the Facebook page for the podcast. If you feel you would like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com. Just go to patreon.com stroke history Europe, where you can get extra episodes for just $3 a month. The earlier music was by the English composer Henry Purcell. Overture in G minor. I will leave you today with another work of Henry Purcell, which is called The Gordian Knot Untied. I hope you can join me next time where I'll cover the battles of the Boyne and the Battle of Algrim. Until then, all the best 
and goodbye.